Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm Scott Lease here with my good friend, Richard Harris. And today we are joined yet again from somebody across the pond in the UK. Um, Alex Ollie is joining us today from just outside of London, I believe. Alex is the, is, uh, this is the best job title ever, Richard. Alex is the co-founder and BDR at ReachDesk. So we're going to get into all this and find out what that means. But welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks a lot, Scott. Yeah, um, you're absolutely bang on. Uh, South London, south of the river. That's where all the best uh, Londoners are from, by the way. Um, but yeah, co-founder and BDR is, I don't think you see that too often, right? Have you guys heard of that one before? I have no. I have never really. seen someone list that as their job title at all. And they all should. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's, 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 it's really simple. Uh, one of my favorite things in the world is prospecting. I genuinely love prospecting. Some people like um, get a bit funny about having to pick up the phone. They kind of feel the fear. I was actually trained as a sales rep kind of by accident. I was just given a list of numbers and there was no training. There was no script. It was just like talk to people and find their problems. And that was, you know, 10, 11 years ago. Um, but the reason why I'm kind of a BDR and I see it as a promotion, by the way, um, is because at the beginning of like this whole pandemic, there were a lot of sales leaders saying, hey, you should be empathetic. You should lead with empathy and like, you know, be aware of that. And that's what I kind of teach our reps anyway. The problem I had is all my BDRs were like, but actually, how do we do the nitty gritty of prospecting? How do we adapt that call? How do we change that email? How do we like use new channels and new forums to actually break through to people? So uh, as I didn't have the answers, I thought I'd join them. Um, so I've kind of got back in the trenches. So and what did you, so, so aside from leading with empathy, which I, you know, tell, and tell me if I'm wrong, that conceptually you agree, but nobody was really teaching them what that meant, right? So now that you throw, you threw yourself in there, what were the things that you noticed differently that were different because of the pandemic and the current situation as it relates to everything in the BDR role in general? What is leading with empathy mean or starting with empathy mean now you know or, or where do you even start if you're not saying empathy i mean it's always been there empathy is really simple you step into the shoes of your prospect and you walk a couple of miles in them right you actually try and understand what they actually care about right now um for me it was actually about flipping what the key questions were six months ago that your prospects would be asking themselves like the problems that you can solve there actually do it, turning it into the, uh, this day and age, right? We sell to uh, mainly marketers, right? So they would be using this for like account-based marketing, demand gen, and, uh, and events marketing. Right? But now all of a sudden, they can't reach people in the same forum as they used to. So you just flip the question, right? The key question beforehand was that, how do we kind of double our response rates so that we can, uh, we can get better results? It's still the same question. It's just the more that the how you do it. Well, how are you doing? How you what, what can you give people in terms of a, uh, approach or a tip or a tactic that will help them get better at this as a, a BDR or a marketer either one well, let's go with both yeah well look BDRs need to really embrace this multi-channel thing right a lot of people before would just be like I'm just really good at the phone right now the problem we've got with that is we don't know who's actually working in their offices and who's at home which companies have redirect systems right so all of a sudden you've kind of got to almost double your output with the amount of channels you can use. But there's so many 
everyone goes, well, well, I'll use phone and email and then maybe I'll do a bit of LinkedIn as well. You should be thinking even further outside the box. Right? As a BDR, you should join like Slack communities. Where do your buyers hang out? Right? Uh, some of our BDRs have joined ones where there's like 2,000 field marketers. Right? They join that Slack community. They can listen into what everyone's talking about. And all of a sudden, you have five people a day that, have, that are talking about the problem that you solve. You can then hit them up on Slack in that community, prospect them on LinkedIn because you see they're active on LinkedIn. And all of a sudden, you've got like a true multi-channel approach. So for BDRs, it's about thinking outside the box, find places where your competition don't hang out, but more importantly, where your actual prospects hang out and then, and then go there. How do you, how do you, and maybe in the Slack community, it's different because, you know, I know we're parts of some other communities where this sort of this, hey, don't pimp yourself, don't, don't promote your solution when you hear the problem. How do you navigate your BDRs um, around that concept? Or are you like, don't worry about it. You know what, pitch them. And if someone hates it, then they hate it. I'm kind of somewhere in between, to be honest with you. If you know someone's struggling with something and they're talking about it, and you can show them how you can help them, why wouldn't you pitch them? That's, it's okay to start a conversation. The, I think the, the, the blurred line at the moment is like, how do I sell to people who can buy now? And how do I sell to people who can buy in the future? It's okay to tee up pipeline that might close in three months time. Um, but I don't think sales reps should really be too afraid of pitching people if they know that there's a problem there. What has surprised you in going back to the, the BDR role that, that maybe, wasn't true when you were selling years ago. Any, is there anything in particular that stands out? I don't, think that, I don't think anything surprised me because I've always kept my finger on the pulse when it comes to prospecting. I'm not one of those leaders that thought, hey, I could be a BDR and then I'd become an account executive and a head of sales and not do calls or not be in the trenches. Um, so I don't think too much has actually surprised me. Right? I've always prospected, even when I was an AE. If there was a lead deficit and I wasn't getting enough meetings, I'd book them myself, right? So I've always prospected. I've always been there. Um, I think the thing that uh, the, the, the BDRs need to be more aware of is that there are too many assumptions made. It's like, oh, they don't want to talk to me. They don't want to have that message. They don't open emails. People don't answer phones anymore, that kind of thing. It's more like the best BDRs are the ones that just get rid of all those assumptions and just, just a persistent at all levels. Um, persistence is like one of, the, one of the best things. If you can do that whilst being curious, I think you'll always win. So there's nothing that surprised me, partly because I've always kept my finger on the pulse. But um, the thing that shocks me is the amount of assumptions that are made, because I think there are too many reports out there saying, don't do this and don't do that and be aware of this. And I think it's more that people should be saying, just give it a go. And if it works, then just zone in on that and keep going at it. Has, it, has there been any changes in your strategy as far as corporate gifting and um, direct mail goes and things like that? I mean, at the very beginning, of, I think people are not as afraid now, but at the very beginning, I mean, people were like, you know, spraying down their mail with disinfectant and stuff like that. And I remember hearing, I don't know if you should send, you know, corporate gifts right now because people might be worried about where it's coming from. And you know what I mean? All that stuff has... Did you find that to be <clears throat> across the board or is that really, you know, only every now and then? And has that sentiment changed and kind of loosened back up? Yeah, big time. Like when, <laughs> when this hit, we were, we were faced with an awful problem, right? Our business is about sending like personalized gifts to people's offices. So all of a sudden it was like, we can't even reach them. So that was the first hurdle. And then we had to think really quickly, how do we actually 
if we're going to send direct mail because we've got to otherwise this business is going to die if we can't send stuff right then i can't sell anything so we realized that actually what people want is to have direct mail sent to them on their own terms right they have to almost consent to it you can't i did hear of one business by the way i'm not going to name them who thought it was okay to go through the white pages and like find people's addresses and cross-reference them then just send stuff to people's homes that's not okay you can't do that <laughs> i could believe it when they said that and then they realized that they made a big mistake and that's when they bought us um but you, what you have to do is you have to do it on people's terms and that means that there's another step in the whole process right um we didn't have that at the beginning of this pandemic so we built a couple of things that allowed people to do that um we've just designed a campaign for for one of our customers that big enterprise company who can now send personalized sneakers to someone's front door right in that person's name but on that person's terms so you can create this whole campaign saying hey i'd love to like do x y and z and i'm not going to give the whole thing away but like here's a link and you can design a pair of sneakers with your name on it and they can be sent to your front door and when they they arrive there's like a call to action to that that's generated a monstrous amount of pipeline for them because they're doing one one simple thing which is changing the way their prospects feel and like really treating personalization to a different level um so we that, had to we had to like we had to like totally change it that's that's some next level corporate gifting there richard i don't know if anybody's <laughs> ever sent you personalized sneakers i have never gotten this before alex sent me um three pairs already i i, I guess scott's not good enough <laughs> <laughs> i must be next on the list but uh, going back to your question right it's um yeah big like big changes but the thing and that was an assumption right we built a system where we could spin up like these custom landing pages that connect to your crm that can automate these sends no one's ever done that before like no business has ever done that where it's all like totally custom to the individual and the company but that was a gamble right and in the in these times as, as founders you have to take you have to roll the dice a little bit um when we started seeing people submitting this and actually engaging with it we realized people wanted stuff to be sent to their home right think about how many linkedin messages you're getting how many vidyards you're getting how many calls and everything when was the last time someone actually tried to engage with you on a personal level with something that actually turned up to your front door at your home but on your terms and as soon as uh, we realized that that was actually the case like our send volumes went went through the roof one of the things that <clears throat> that i find interesting is people are definitely using corporate gifting and like trying to get creative about sending gifts <clears throat> But, I, but they somehow miss a step. So for example, I have received probably three or four bottles of wine in the last couple of months. And I don't drink wine. And anybody who knows me at all or pays attention to a lot of my content, like all I drink is water and tequila. And that's it. And not at the same time. So <clears throat> how, what is this extra mile that somebody needs to go to in order to not make a little bit of a mistake like that? right how are people how are people missing that still well i think i think it starts with with one kind of generic problem that is that people make assumptions right they assume that because you scott are a liverpool fan if i send you like a liverpool jersey that's going to earn me the right to have a conversation and that that might do but it's still a it bit will. of a gamble right it will you you get a lot closer than everybody else yeah, that, <laughs> that from that would actually work for me but it is still an assumption but it, it is an assumption, but so, so that's going to get you one step closer. But a lot of people should assume that if I send you a bottle of wine, that you're going to be a wine drinker because who doesn't not drink wine? Like tons of people for religious, for religious reasons, you might not drink wine for like, you might just not like wine. Right. Um, 
so I think that, that it go, you kind of almost keep going back uh, a couple of steps because uh, people keep making generic assumptions, right? Someone assumed that I was a Fulham football club fan because they'd read something on my Twitter and I'd actually, I, I, I don't even know where they got it from. And they sent me a Fulham jersey, but I wasn't a fan. So it is really, it's like, it's, it's really hard to get right. Um, if you don't have a clear answer, I, I'd say don't bother. If, you, if, you, if you're just kind of shooting in the dark, don't bother. But you can do a lot of stuff to research those things that actually allow you to identify what that person really cares But here's about. the thing. I also think people are just inherently lazy. And I think they're being pressed hardcore by executives to just volume, volume, volume. And I, I've been saying this for years. My cell phone number, my legit phone right here is posted on my LinkedIn profile. Nobody calls me. Not one time. They all LinkedIn in mail me. They all do all this other stuff. And so it's crazy to me that, you know, to Scott's point and your point that they don't just put in 30 seconds to look for the obvious. Like they're not even looking for obvious things, right? They're so busy looking to see what university I went to or something like that, that they came and find the right thing. Yeah. And that, that, that's a leadership thing, right? Because you, 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 you get to train your reps as to, as to what to look out for. Um, am I getting into trouble for this? I don't know if, if the words piss poor are allowed to be used on this show, but I, I just train those P's. Proper prospecting uh, prevents piss poor prospect. Sorry, I'll, I'll rephrase that. Uh, proper prior preparation prevents piss poor pro prospecting. You give your reps those few things they need to look out for. It takes five minutes to research those things and, and you can find it so simply. I'm, I'm alarmed by the fact that you put your mobile phone number out there and no one actually wants to call you. Uh, I'm sure there are thousands of people that want to speak to you, mate. Um, but but people don't, they, they, they don't, they build lists, right? They just build lists out of some data sheet and you call them and then you end up with a script. Yeah, my my phone number is out there. I get called very, very rarely. I, I think people are looking for ex excuses. Like Richard said, they're a little bit lazy. I, I really I really hope people hear what you're saying about just like go the extra mile and if you, if you've not for sure that you're sending something to somebody that they want and that is the right thing, then it's better to send nothing because you know, when you, when you send something that is like off, like you send me a bottle of white wine, I go from being like, Oh wow, Alex, I got this thing from Alex. How cool is that? To like, Oh my gosh, this guy doesn't know me at all. And it kind of has the opposite effect. Like if you get it right, it's a big positive. If you get it wrong, it's actually a pretty decent negative, at least for me. Yeah, and I think that the, we don't really send booze unless we have a relationship with someone. If I know someone likes tequila, that's when we send it, but we definitely don't use it to open doors because it's too risky. But actually, that kind of goes back to your question. What do people get wrong? It's actually the message. The thing that you send often doesn't really matter. You can send the same item, but if you don't get the message right, that you do, it, it, that's what that's actually the differentiator yeah you know the, the phrase the phrase is you know the medium is the message right so in this corporate gifting world if you're sending the wrong thing you've sent the wrong message right just like if you send the wrong thing in linkedin or you send the wrong thing anywhere right in an email or phone call you know that that's the key piece so i, I actually want to back up for a second because we've been talking about this but for context for people usually we start there i think because it's monday we forgot you know, what is the name of your company, Alex, that you're working with? Um, what do you guys do? What's your sales cycle like? Just so people have context, right? Just so they understand where your answers are coming from. Sure. Yeah. So 
I found a reach desk back in 2018 with a couple of guys I used to work with. We're all like SaaS sales uh, and marketing guys. Um, you know, we help marketing, sales and CS leverage the power of like physical direct mail and gifting all sent from within like your CRM or your sales engagement platform so that you can send personalized gifts at scale within this tech stack that you operate in. Um, the reason why we started it is because we very simply noticed how noisy it was getting out there over email, phone, LinkedIn and everything, how hard it was to actually execute upon getting those, those things out and track it all and measure the ROI stuff that we'd been doing. Uh, we'd seen it like really work to help people break through the noise and uh, we kicked it off and it's grown pretty quickly. Um, sales cycle wise about, about 90 days, roughly um, ACV is around 25 K. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's, it's a really, it's a really early industry that we're in. You know, there are a couple of businesses that, that do this, but not many people want to touch this. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I think that you guys are a beautiful platform in the sense that you support marketing and you support sales, right? Yeah. How do you help navigate that? Right. Because I can see salespeople being like, yeah, I'm going to send all this stuff. And marketing's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We got to be more thoughtful. Not to say that salespeople wouldn't be thoughtful, you know, for Scott or something like that. But like, how do you help organizations bridge that gap? Because we already know it exists in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm just curious how you guys see that. Yeah, look, it's, it's really simple. We build a, like an organizational structure within the platform so that you have like safety measures put in. So if you don't want your reps to send booze, you don't let them send booze. Right? You give them budgets, you streamline it all, you report on it. Um, so you can just set it up really, really easily so that if you are a B2B company that sells to like banks, for example, where it's kind of like they have gifting policies and certain restrictions on stuff, you can set it up so that team actually is or isn't allowed to do certain things. Whereas if you sell to like other salespeople where it's kind of free reign and you can just do whatever you want, then you can unlock it a little bit. What do you, how do, what about the sales leader and the marketing leader, right? Do you see them clashing over this or do you see, do you see this as a way to help them get along? Like I, I could see it going either way. It, it, it goes either way, right? You either get people who were just like, this is another awful project that we're just never going to get over the line because these guys can't see eye to eye or actually it brings them together. Um, the trend that I've noticed is, when you start to do a discovery with, with these businesses and you realize that they are on the same page in terms of their targets, which is often like a revenue target, those are the ones that work really well. Hey, we're both working towards revenue, right? So we're both in the trenches and therefore we're gonna, we're gonna make this work because we're both, we've got a consensus here. The ones that kind of break up that marketing qualified lead is my job and after that it's down to sales. Those are the ones that usually fall out. Do you, do you guys just qualify them out then? Like, hey, you guys, no. are, you're, you're chased on the road. You guys, you guys aren't aligned yet. Go, go figure it out. We're not going to take your money. Or are you still no, take we, we, we don't, we don't, we don't tell them to grow up and grow a pair. We, uh, we try and educate them a little bit and say that this is the future of, of sales and marketing. So that's what we believe in, right? We were born account-based in a sense, where we didn't have to rip down all that gated content and everything. Uh, we had, we'd had nothing. So we kind of were born that way. Um, but yeah, we, we'll, we'll happily take the money. Are you, are you, um, what is the split in terms of geography of where your business is coming from? I, I asked the question because, um, in a recent conversation, people were, were telling us how farther ahead America is in terms of selling and like strategies and structure and whatnot. So I'm wondering, is, is your product selling better 
in North America versus in the UK, or is it the opposite? And and why do you think that is? Yeah, it's like the way I describe it is selling in Europe specifically is like kind of fighting into a headwind a little bit because it's as you say, it's got your market is a bit more mature, a bit more advanced, um, it, specifically in our space. Um, I don't know about sales. I, think, I always think we're better than you guys, but that's just my opinion. Um, no, I'm only kidding. But like in, 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 the, in the US, it's a real tailwind. So we sign bigger deals faster uh, in the US because this, this is like a, a channel that's been adopted for years. And we, we've yeah. kind of just started adopting it over here. The problem we had is we were a UK company, right? That's where we started. And once we convinced those first 10 customers to sign on with us, they all said the same thing. We don't care about having this in the UK. We need it in the US because that's where we want to grow, right? So we accidentally had to, almost from like month one, have our product available in the US, right? And that's why we actually made a decision to have like a US CEO to build a, a team out in the US from, from the get-go. Very few UK companies get to, to have that luxury because they usually wait sort of three, four, maybe five years, do a series B or something, raise a load of money and then hire a US team. Our customers demanded us to do it. So it made us get to the US quicker. And when we got there, we realized it was potentially even easier to sell, even though there was competition. there. Yeah. I want to go back to <clears throat> something you were talking about before, which is like how important it is to get the messaging right. And I, I know a little bit of your, your background and, and how you got into sales and the winding road and what you used to do before. And maybe you can share that with everybody. And what I want to know is how those experiences of being a lawyer and working into the music industry and all that, how, have, how has that helped you as a seller and a founder craft the right kind of messaging to bring deals home? Yeah, for me, it's about storytelling. So, you know, for those of you who don't know, I, I kind of, well, I fell into the SaaS industry by accident, right? I went to uni, went studied law with French, like always wanted to be a lawyer. I was like the most competitive person in the world. I've got a twin brother, right? Always competing, right? always, always competing. My parents are like, you're just so argumentative and you hate losing and you just need to be a lawyer. Right? That was the advice I was given. So I kind of went into law, did all that stuff and I realized it was, it just sucked. It was so bad, <laughs> right? So I went to all these interviews and I'm like, ah, oh, I'm not this guy. And I'd always played a lot of music, right? From the age of five, I started playing music. So I'd always done like law with music in the background. And I actually fell into this, this uh, tech startup when the music streaming days were like really starting. So you had that like, Spotify, you had Napster, and I fell into a company called Deezer. And uh, it kind of happened by accident because I just hated this idea of wanting to go into law. Um, and I think what that, what that kind of helped me to do was with, with being in like a creative industry where you still have to sell, where they were kind of like, not so many restrictions it allows you to have what well, it kind of forces you to build a story right you're not going to just kind of selling on features and benefits you've got to tell the pain you've got to articulate that in a different way um and i think that's why you know we our sales process is really creative uh, we do like some of the most outlandish things as salespeople because we're not afraid to tell stories we're not afraid to kind of get our hands dirty and do those things that are going to make that prospect smile a little bit so I think it was the days of, uh, of actually the music industry more, um, more than ever where you've got to get super, super creative and having been a musician that kind of allowed me to remove all the red tape and actually just put things into play, which kind of makes people feel a little bit different. Did you, did you recognize that right away? <clears throat> like when you, when you got into your, your sales gig, were you like, oh shit, this is just like 
storytelling and just like crafting this narrative, what, what, which I was doing as a lawyer and whatnot, or is that something that you kind of only made the connection with later on? Yeah, no, it was actually one of my managers and he was just like, I've never seen someone write emails like that. I've never sort of seen that kind of, and I used to put music into my prospecting as well. I put like sound bites in there. I'd like write poetry. I'd like write random stuff. And he'd be like, that's like the most highest performing sequence ever. And it breaks wow. all the rules. So how do you do that? And I was like, well, this is how I write music. And I used to write like music for my band and everything. Um, and I was like, that's how I used to write music. And like you tell the story and you have this flow and you have like that hook and everything. And he was just like, keep writing emails like that because it works. Can you give so, an example? Can you get, I'm curious to what that sounds like. What was, can you give an example of like writing poetry or writing music? Cause I think it's great. Like it's like, dude, dude you should have created Vidyard too. Um, Right. I'll tell you the secret to prospecting Richard right now is, is send him an email with a, a soundbite of Springsteen in it of some kind. And like he's, this will blow his mind if anybody wants to prospect Richard. Absolutely. Okay, well, afterwards, I'll have, to, I'll have to fire up the old Gibson and, and get the amp humming. But, uh, but like, it, it's not rocket science, right? I'll tell you how not to do it. But for, but for a non-musician, it is. Like for someone who's you know, played guitar poorly for 20 years. It's fascinating that like, oh my God, that's such a great way to do it. So, um, so what sounds natural to you probably isn't natural to me. And, that, and that's why I like it, so. Yeah, I think um, how not to do it is like really long, really lengthy, right? The, if you think about a pop song on average, it's about three minutes long, right? It's, it's a lot shorter than the traditional one. If you want to like write, write prog rock, it's going to be like six to nine minutes. Smaller audience, not as many people like it, but the advocates love it. Um, keep it short, have those hooks in there, make it rhyme if you can. But the best songs are the ones that resonate with you, right? The ones but when you listen you to something. Take a popular tune and rewrite it? With maybe, maybe, maybe that's the next boot camp that we're gonna have to do, right? If, if, you, if, you, if you listen to music and then dissect it. Well, but no, it that would be an amazing boot camp. Well, all, you're gonna, all of our, all the salespeople are gonna turn into their own version of Weird Al Yankovic now. Right, totally. <laughs> totally. I'm just, I just made a note not to do Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> but then, like, so, so, so th th and that's the other thing, right? So, if you, if you think about your, your audience and in music, you generally have your fan base. Uh, you know how to write music. Once you've done that, like that, that first album that has gone platinum. You know what your fan base loves and you keep writing stuff which kind of iterates on that and you slightly change it. That's what you got to find. That's the, that's the hard part is finding your fan base, which is your personas and your prospects and writing something that, that appeals to them and then continue to refresh it. The hardest part of any artist's career is album number two. Right? Album number one is easy for most people because you can find something original, you can do it. Album number two is the hard part. And that's kind of email two in a sequence where you connect them together. Right? How do I write something that was probably just a little bit better than that other one that told a story that kind of hooked someone in and made them want to listen to it again. So are you saying your first album went platinum? Pretty much. Yeah. Just checking. So. <laughs> but like, I, I get, so there's no kind of theory behind it. I, I haven't written a playbook on how to turn music into prospecting. But if you continue and think that most the best artists, are the ones that have a long career, if you write a sequence that kind of tells a progressive story, now, if you if you use sequencing tools, a progressive story that isn't just like this big one hit wonder at the beginning that kind of overthrows you and then it's forgotten about quickly. If you can think about it in that way and, and look for the album deals and like really hone that craft and build on it as you go, you'll have a long career in it. This, this analogy is really resonating with me. I, a couple hours ago, earlier today, <clears throat> was having a conversation with a client of mine 
and then and we were talking about how <clears throat> the step one email was working really really well we were getting 50 60 percent responses huge huge rate but the seller was saying you know people write back and they're like i'd love to talk but then they start to dark and then, and then this like got me thinking now about this is like the follow-up album right it's the step the step two email step one i got their interest and and they replied but the step two this follow-up album is misfiring for this particular client <clears throat> and that one is arguably more important that's the one that starts to take them down the path to being an actual real opportunity. That's a, that's a great analogy. I love the, the music analogy like that. Yeah, that's yeah really I, I, think, I think that's the right way of looking at it, right? So when I was a music lawyer, and I, I, I represented bands like the Rolling Stones and some of your favorites uh, that you've got, Scott, but like, you know, we represented really big bands. And when I first sat down with them, I was like starstruck. I was like, oh my God, these are like my heroes. And I actually get to like work with them. And whenever I asked all of them, I was like, so when did you guys know that you were going to have a really long career? And they all said the same album two, right? Album two is, is when you know it's going to work because that follow up to the first one, that's the great moment. And from there on, like it's usually about album five or seven where they kind of fizzle out a little bit because they've made so much money and uh, destroyed their lives from the fame that they've kind of done their bit, but it was always album two. And I think if, if salespeople, we can think like that, think long term. don't, if you want to write a single, like just a single and have a flash in the pan, write a really long rubbish email that kind of captures someone's attention or, or a subject line that gets it open. But the ones that are being, the, the guys who are patient and want to go through the process and actually play long-term for, for that person they're prospecting, those are the guys that are going to win. I'm trying to, I'm still trying to write my, my one Christmas single, right? Even though I'm Jewish, because I know that every year I get residuals, right? You hear that every year, right? Like these are the people who keep making money. You just need one. If, that, if you're going to be that kind of musician, right? So, but I, I'm, I'm totally fascinated. I'm going to totally derail this conversation. What musicians have you like hung out and had these kind of business conversations with, if you're allowed to mention? Uh, I mean, most of them I, I, I can talk about. Um, but like, you know, bands like Daft Punk, right? Those are the guys who are the most interesting because they're the kind of behind the scenes. They're the robots with, with, with no faces. Um, you know, we represented Radiohead, The Stones, those kind of guys. Um, Muse, you know, they're all very different. It's interesting how a lot of these are... But, but you know, in the end, you know, and, and granted, many, most of them are, you know, they don't really, quote unquote, have to sell albums anymore. But I think there is this commercial aspect, right? There is this commercial aspect of they have to sell the band, they have to sell the tour, they have to do those things. What similarities have you seen in working with people in that type of an industry from a sales perspective or something like that? Like, you know, what are they paying attention to, right? Like, do they really still pay attention to the album cover like they used to in the seventies and eighties, right? Because they know that, you know, back when I was little, before Scott was born, I would pick up the album and I would look at it and I'd flip it over and it was an experience, right? I'm curious, what kind of things do you, do you see in the music industry or did you see that are still sales and business related? They're, they're all businessmen and women, right? They're all businessmen and women. They've all got like, they've all got that acumen that, that wants to make them get better. And that, that's a gen, kind of a, a general statement, but it rang true with all of them, right? All of these guys have empires. And if you think about this, they can't just kind of sit on pots and pots of money because they've all got like a lot of things that rely on them to continue to put cash in. They've all got like 
recording studios, like fast cars and boats and stuff that need maintaining and they've got a lifestyle to maintain. If you look back into like 2010 when music streaming really hit, those album sales took a massive dive. So the best ones were the ones that, that, that latched onto streaming because they realized it was going to be something that, that was actually going to continue to drive revenue for them. Um, so the best ones, it's not just the managers, right? The managers get a lot of credit. The best artists that have survived and continue to grow now are the ones that hopped on the right platforms and the right solutions. And the analogy there for sales is they know how to sell themselves from a creative standpoint, but they also know how to really leverage specific platforms to make sure that they can continue to, to grow and keep ahead. Um, you know, you look at how Radiohead uh, did some of their albums where they actually didn't charge a price for it. The fans got to dictate that, right? That actually meant that they, they, they actually did way better than they would have done had they sold a normal album because they used the internet, empowered the fans and actually allowed them to, to decide. It creates a lot of publicity. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I long, literally, last century, I worked for a newspaper and sold classified ads, all the ads in the back of the paper, and Radiohead was a client. Their entire mark, part of their entire marketing campaign was to go into newspapers all over the country and run like seven or eight classified ads in different sections just to see if their fans would find them. Right. Like, and granted, they were successful enough at that point that they could have this game. Right. But to your point, I also think it's that's the creative part of the sequence. Right. That's them writing something different, doing something completely different outside the sort of standard, you know, email, phone call, LinkedIn approach. Right. So um, it is fascinating to sort of I hadn't thought about that in years. Um, but I think I think more musicians should be salespeople. And they kind of are. They are salespeople. Right. But I think the best salespeople for me are the ones that are really, really creative and really curious to find that next thing that's kind of spice things up. We're starting, um, I think we're starting to communicate and talk about that a lot more. We've we've sort of moved beyond um, the sort of athlete salesperson as a paradigm like everybody knows that athletes have been good historically in sales and whatnot but now there's a huge push for people from the creative arts so actors musicians people from theater or drama or uh, speech and debate clubs these types of <clears throat> these types of backgrounds we're, we're really comedians is another one like we're gravitating towards people who um, have been selling themselves in some way and telling these stories about themselves to, to get a part or to get their message across the, the right way. So that, that very much rings true, you know, for, for me. I think the reason why that is, by the way, is if you look at the advancements of how sales changes, it changes like every week now. <laughs> Pretty much like right now, you can almost guarantee, or maybe it's a bit harsh, every month, right? What happened a couple of months ago might not be relevant now. So the best people are the ones that think creati like creatively about what can we do next? Well, how can we improve? How can we change it? Because the pace of sales and how we do it changes so quickly. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, the, the, the athlete side of things is the person that will, will always work really hard, is really driven, will out, try and outcompete everyone and they'll always go above and beyond. But actually they miss that flair, which thinks actually what's going to happen next. I think that's why the creative side of things is, is becoming more necessary because sales changes every week and, and you need people to think that step ahead. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. <clears throat> so you, you threw a jab at us before about, um, you know, the UK being better salespeople than, than the US. I, th I think that we've 
proved that that might not be the case since we took you down and the U.S. women took the U.K. ladies ladies down and whatnot. But that that the cool thing about that experience and these events is that I think it has we've all done well to bridge the gap, if you will. So there's two dozen, you know. VPs of sales or, or CEOs or, or uh, you know, consultants that have come together through um, those, those two events, not to mention the whole global sales community who participated in them. You know, but we've got a relationship now and, and same, same thing with the folks that were on the US team and the UK team and whatnot. <clears throat> How can we, what else can we do, I guess, to bridge the gap and, and get more you know, involved in each other's sales community? Like, what are some of the things that Richard and I should be doing to become more involved in the UK sales community? And what are some of the things that people like you and, and Daniel Disney and Allison Edgar, like, what, what are the things that y'all need to be doing to get more involved in the US sales community? How can we, how can we eliminate the distance even more and, and come together, you know, a little bit stronger and, and help each other out? Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think an, almost my first observation from that experience where I did absolutely smash Richard in the uh, the whip round, whatever it was at the end. I think I actually did that by, by making you answer first. I was, I was like throwing you a bone. <laughs> um, but like to me, for me, to be honest with you, I think um, we actually talk about like Europe and the US. And there's obviously like, um, the, the, because we all speak the same language, um, the US and the UK seem to get a lot better. And actually, I think more more uh, sales trainers I'm talking to right now want to get more involved in Europe. Like, how do I break into Germany? How do I break into France? Because that audience that's even bigger. So it's almost like, how do, how do people like me help guys on the other side of the pond actually break into those other markets outside of the UK? And that's Europe in, in, in general, right? And I think that's uh, it's quite difficult because there's so many different cultures, different languages flying around. But everyone listens to stuff in English. Um, and I think I'm seeing more more communities open up about like the European sales community, which I've never seen before. So that's, that's an interesting observation. I think in terms of how um, we can bridge the gap, uh, I think let's just keep having contests, and, and when uh, when the UK finally wins, then we'll 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 call it we'll call it evens. That's um, a, it's a good point that you make though about about looking at Europe rather than just the the UK. Um, I mean, look at my question. I wasn't even asking about Europe. Mm. And there's no, there's no real, there's no good reason for me not to be asking. I mean, I've, I've had a client in, uh, in Berlin and in, in Germany before. Richard's gone to multiple places in Europe, even some kind of off the beaten path a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, whether it's different events or, or, or webinars or whatnot, but some of these relationships that we're all kind of beginning to establish um, I think we would all do very well to continue to strengthen those <clears throat> relationships and then branch out, like you said, like, how can I help Alex in, in, in what he's trying to do in North America? Maybe how can Alex help Scott and Richard in what, in what they're trying to do and whatnot? So that kind of brings me to, in a roundabout way, towards the, the end of our show here where we, we like to flip things around at the end and say very specifically, like, how can we help you? Is there, you know, something that you're working on right now that, um, you know, you want to kind of talk about or is there things that you need or questions that you have? What can we do to, to support you and, 
and what you're up to with uh, with Breach Test. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. I hadn't, I hadn't even considered that. I think top of mind for me is you know half of my business is is in the US, half of my business is in uh, in the UK. So we're kind of evenly split. But I suppose we don't have as much awareness. Um, the biggest question mark for us at the moment when it comes to like our product and positioning is people are still worried about sending to people's homes, right? And if you can help me just kind of send the message that there's so many ways that you can still reach people in a physical way um, and, and kind of get other salespeople to, to take that plunge, then that, that certainly helps me. So I think you guys have helped me enough uh, in terms of just uh, the support you guys have shown me. Um, I know, Scott, we've spoken a bit about being a founder and everything, right? But as, as a business, um, continue to fly the flag for creativity for the sales community is, is all I ask for, really. Continue to show people that, um, one, it's okay to be creative and be a bit outlandish and try new things, but um, yeah, fly the flag for us and show that it's still okay yeah. to use the physical channel right now. Yeah, the physical channel works. And, and a quick story, the best physical gift that I ever received. Somebody, and I won't say who, but somebody knows that I'm a big San Francisco Giants fan. And somebody found this uh, black and white photo of Willie Mays making his famous, like, facing the wrong direction, over the shoulder catch. And it's like, got an autograph from Willie Mays and sent it to me as like a, as like a thank you. It wasn't even a <clears throat> prospecting uh, gift. But that thing hangs on the wall, like in my house, right? So when you get it right, it's super powerful. So. I, I, physical gifting is is here to stay you just gotta be good at it <laughs> and if you want to prospect if you want to prospect richard just send him something that has to do with bruce springsteen and you can, and fake, you can even fake the autograph right so. <laughs> my, my well, wife I'm, 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 i might well. even know someone who can get you the original yeah so my wife knows me so well you know we've been doing puzzles through the pandemic right like it's a quiet family concentration activity and she found one of Springsteen that I've been working on. <laughs> so just, nice. just showed up from Amazon. I'm like, oh, my wife this knows. Is level, this is the level of obsession that we're dealing with here, Alex. Right. <laughs> and, that, and that's totally okay because the boss is, 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 is a good man. Um, I'm going to send you some links to, to, to some films and one of them is all about Springsteen. It's a really like cult classic uh, English one. It's all about this kid in London that goes and like just follows everything to do with Springsteen and like yeah. it helps him like break out of, of uh, the kind of the, the restricted family he's in. So um, tequila and Springsteen, I'll make a note of those yeah. two. I've got, go. more, I've got more Springsteen bootlegs than anybody I know. Like I started collecting them at gosh, what, 17 or 18. Um, yeah. I had, like bootlegs of REM and the doors. That's a whole other conversation. I should see if I can find them. So nice. Nice. All right, Alex. We appreciate it. Cool. Thank you so much. Really good. Chat. Thanks for having me, guys.